Shalom and welcome again to another edition of Secrets of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We welcome you to these programs which attempt to explore some of the impact of longevity on our families, our community, and ourselves. Please feel free to contact us with ideas and suggestions to me, uh, Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com and also just go to the website, JewishSacredAging.com and visit us and like us on the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. So we've covered all of that. We are pleased also for today's edition of Secrets of Meaning to welcome as our sponsor, the Rothkoff Elder Law Firm, which provides a full range of assistance to individuals and family in the area of elder law. You can contact them at rothkofflaw.com or their phone number at 877-475-1101. And it is with a great deal of pleasure that we welcome to the Seekers of Meaning uh, podcast and TV uh, show Rabbi Zoe Klein coming to us all the way from the beautiful shores of Los Angeles, California, my old hometown for a while, um, here to discuss an absolutely fantastic, let me get this out of the way right away, uh, new book published by the CCAR Press uh, called Candle, Feathers, and Wooden Spoon. Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon, New Jewish Stories. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Rabbi Klein, she is literally one of the most gifted, created, talented colleagues that we have uh, in the United States today, writing, creating. We've used some of her rituals in uh, the workshop we do on new rituals for new life stages. Zoe, welcome. Thank you very, very much for joining thank us. Thank you. It's, thank you. And you've been such an inspiration to me. Oh. I, anytime I've heard you speak, I still have uh, pages and pages of notes from your oh, cool. lectures and presentations that oh, I refer back to all the time. The check is in the mail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, this is a wonderful book. Um, Thank you. Uh, for those of you who n will know Rabbi Klein, you'll hear her voice in many of these uh, very wonderful stories. Um, the power of stories, Zoe. What What is the power of stories in, in people's lives, and especially the power and importance of one's own story as we get older? Mm. Oh, that's such a wonderful question. Well, I first want to say that when I sent this proposal to the CCAR press about this idea of this anthology of short stories, the response I got was, we love your writing. We'd love to do a project with you. However, we don't publish fiction. And I responded to that and said, well, if you would indulge me for a little bit, I'd love to make a case for why maybe you should. And it really speaks to the power of storytelling. And the case that I made was just the idea that if the goal is to transmit values, Jewish values, teachings, lessons, history, there's no better vehicle to transmit that than stories. Because there's something about, you know, you read nonfiction. Nonfiction is amazing. All writing is powerful and, you know, can be impactful. There's something about stories that impress themselves into the clay of your heart. It leaves an impression. It, it, it attaches itself to your emotions. It'll, uh, uh, you know, wakes up all of your, all of your senses. So there's such power in fiction. And the interesting thing about growing older, I love the idea of using metaphor in therapy or in counseling. And oftentimes when I meet with congregants in my office, I, I try to look for a metaphor that will help shift how they're feeling. So 
I'll give a quick example. We, I would, I was once talking to a congregant many, many years ago who had had a double mastectomy and she was having a lot of trouble loving her body and recognizing her own body. And she saw disfiguration and it made her really unhappy. And so I suggested that perhaps we could imagine your chest as an altar and your breasts were the offering, were the sacrifice, the lambs that were offered up for a greater good. And years later, she wrote to me and said that she still, when she sees her own body, she thinks to herself, sacred altar. And I think it's true with aging too. You know, you get age spots on your hands. Um, you can look at them as something that is disfiguring, or you can look at them and say, you know, look at those lily pads floating in a little lake. You know, you can, you can write new metaphors and poeticize the stage. You know, laugh lines can be bouquets as opposed to wrinkles. So there's so many ways to play with fiction, metaphor, poetry. And, and our tradition is filled with story. I mean, Midrash is uh, how many rabbis, you know, use Midrash, you know, all the time to tell that story. That's true. When I look at the, when you look at the Torah, Torah is all, as of course, you know, it's all consonants. There's no vowels. And so it's almost like a carcass until you chant it, read it, interpret it, study it, because you're breathing. Vowels are all air, right? They're all neshama, they're all breath. So we breathe our soul into the stories. That's Midrash, but it also is what brings it to life. Right. Listen, that's why that, that the blessing la asok to play with it. Let it, let them, mm. it's my buddy, that. my buddy, Jakey, Rabbi Joukowsky of blessed memory. He always used to teach me about the most powerful word in that blessing is la asok because you just let, and you've done Torah study all the time. You know, you let the text speak to you where it hits you. Um, I'm fascinated by the creative process. So these stories, uh, and we're going to get to some of them. Um, they're so they're they're short, but they're powerful. How do how do you how do you write? Do you do you lock yourself away? Uh, do you go to a you know a, a, an Airbnb in Laguna? Do you get inspiration? <laughs> that sounds good. You know, do, are you inspired by sitting on the four hundred five trying to get for into <laughs> Beverly Hills or something? Uh, you know, because <laughs> it is a big parking lot. <laughs> where where do you where do you draw your inspiration from? How do you write? It's a, I'm so fascinated by how writers write, so I'm right there with you. I love hearing how writers write. For me. Um, I, you know, I think about the two candles on Shabbat representing remember and observe. And I think that that's a lot of what goes into any kind of art. You have to be observant of, you know, scenes unfolding around you, details, and you have mm -hmm. to remember them for when you're sitting and you're creating. Um, my preference is so funny. People are always posting online about the beautiful view, right? Look at this beautiful view I'm seeing. For me, give me a windowless room. <laughs> <laughs> and a computer and uh, I can go anywhere. And I really like to be in solitude when I write. Now, the interesting thing is I'm not in solitude almost ever. <laughs> so, you know, I'm working full time and have been at Temple Isaiah for 24 years. And I have three children, two of whom are now out of the house, but there's not a lot of room for quietude. Um, and so I, some, I know some writers can write, you know, a couple of hours at night after children are asleep. Some, you know, can squeeze an hour in, a, you know, in the morning. 
for me, I really rely on my day off on Mondays. Um, I need a good six to eight hours of alone time to write, even if I'm just writing a page or two. I need that warm up time of staring at the screen just without moving. <laughs> I need to kind of immerse into the blank canvas or the blank page. And, um, I need time to get into the world. Um, but there's field work I can do in the meantime. There's one story, The Magic Word, which is about a character who's somewhat of a linguist. She's interested in linguistics. And I made a commitment to myself that I couldn't write that story until I listened to 20 podcasts, um, by linguists. And even though it's a short story, I wanted to really immerse into the language of linguists. What do people talk about when they study linguistics? Um, so I really, I love that aspect of writing, which is the immersion in the world. And that for me, it takes time and it takes a removal of any distractions. So sometimes when I get all bottled up and I just can't find the time because those Monday days off, you know, shopping still has to be done. Laundry needs to be folded. There's other things that creep in. Um, sometimes I will rent that Airbnb for a couple of nights or, or a weekend. Um, or take part of a vacation and do that. And um, I really value that time. No, I, I know a friend of mine who is writing, um, who literally rented a place uh, for a couple of months during the winter. And just for exactly this reason, she had to finish this book or, and that forced her to do it. So I, I, I understand that. I admire it. I did the same thing. I had my sabbatical in this winter and I rented a oh. cabin in Tennessee and I was there for a month. And my biggest fear about doing that was that I was not going to want to come back. But I even ended my trip two days early. So it's ha I'm happy to note that I really missed everybody. <laughs> I couldn't oh, wait no. to come back. Big difference between Tennessee and LA. But that's <laughs> yes. another story for another time. It's <laughs> true. I was in rural. I didn't really interact with anyone. Wow. Okay. Uh how do you see, how, how, we'll have colleagues, um, perhaps listening or watching this, adult education people from congregations, organizations. How do you want this book to be used? Because you have questions at the end of every short story. You have a series of sort of like discussion questions. Um, do you want this as a book club? Do you see this being used in confirmation classes? Do you, how, how would you love to see this being used? Well, you mentioned confirmation classes or, um, there are, or a short story club yeah, would be yeah. wonderful. Um, I love the idea of creating a short story Shabbat where every Shabbat you share a story and discuss them. The questions at the end are really designed to elicit a lot of conversation and reflection and not just that relationship. I think that's really the ultimate thing is to, is to discuss the questions for the with the goal of connecting with other people more deeply and and forging stronger relationships questions that you might not have ever explored together and so the the stories um you know are are the, the stories spark that kind of communication between people so book clubs i love the idea of it being integrated into a confirmation curriculum um where students can read, you know, the stories, a story a week or a story a month and then have conversations and maybe even write new endings or take, take the stories to inspire their own stories. 
Some of them could be um, used around campfires or I honestly, I'll tell you, Richard, my fantasy is that the stories break off of the page and become new stories in the hearts and the mouths of other storytellers. So similar to, you know, if you take the sto- a story from Helm, for example, or some of the classic Midrashim, we retell them and we add our own nuance and our own experience and our own color and texture. And to me, that's where things really come alive. So speaking of coming alive, <laughs> I got to ask you about this. The title of the, of the book is Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon. Yes. So you have the title story, Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon, um, basically about midway through the book. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, this is Star Wars. Mm. This is, this is the classic, you know, mythology. The hero has to prove themselves, has to have it. It's the Wizard of Oz to kill the witch. It's it, a quest. It's, it's the quest. It's the quest. So talk to me about this because it's a great story and it's intergenerational. It's got grandpop. It's, it's really just talk to me about this. You got to read this. You get the book. You got to read this. And this is a, it's a sermon. Forget the sermon. Mm-hmm. Just read the story and then have a conversation. <laughs> well, it's, it's so interesting that you say Star Wars because the book that the story that inspired this, the, um, that, that, the, that inspired the outline of this story, the, right. the structure of this story was a chapter book called My Father's Dragon. Do you know My Father's Dragon? No, so I read it to my children and it was about a boy and he's trying to, he hears the stories of his father and he wants to um, try to rescue this, this supposed legendary dragon. And he does so with mundane objects and it's really very exciting. Um, and so I thought about the mundane objects, the candle, the feather and the wooden spoon, and that we already have this quest built into our tradition. And it's not one of the major quests. It's not, you know, the story of uh, the Exodus or, you know, it's, it's this very gentle little thing that happens before Passover, um, looking for the last bits of hummets in the house. And so I, I love the idea of taking these mundane objects and being able with them to, you know, to go on this, this incredible adventure. And the adventure takes this boy through many chapters of Jewish history. And in doing so, he becomes more sensitive, sensitive, more curious, more um, interested in his grandfather's story and where his grandfather's bitterness comes from. Yeah. I I don't know what the, um, searching for the right word, unification, reunification, the relationship of grandpop to mm. the boy. And at the end, the understanding of the bitter, you know, bitter, 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 whatever. It's just a lovely story. It's, it's just a really very human. And I think a lot of families will be able to relate to it in a variety of different ways. And, and, and the intergenerational thing is, is, um, it's just very touching and very meaningful. Well, 
It's I I removed the parents from the story by making them caterers. So (laughs) anytime there's a Jewish holiday, you know, I imagine caterers are working very early and very late to, you know, they're they they have a lot of hours that they have to spend at their work. And so it leaves this boy alone with his grandfather. And there's so much misunderstanding between generations. The story really is about the the seeking of intergenerational healing. And um understanding each other's trauma and listening and connecting through Jewish rituals. So, um, you know, it speaks to maybe movies like The NeverEnding Story, which also has a grandparent telling a story to a child and other kinds of frameworks. Oh, no, it's, I, you know, the great, it's like, you know, the, again, uh, the, that opening scene with, with Peter Falk and the little kid and the Princess Bride. Um, mm. Which yes, is, right, exactly. You know, it's like, which, which is a classic, great film and, and another type of, of quest. But, um, it's, and the catering thing, but there's a lot of, you know, you've seen this. We all have seen this talking to kids. Well, my parents are never around. You know, they're so busy working, you know, so they're, of course, they're making a living, you know, trying to do this for you. So the grant and so many grandparents now, we just did a program for this at the local JCC. Mm are heavily involved in caregiving for their grandchildren. Um, Absolutely. So it, it, and it, it, what a gift that is. What an oh, incredible no. gift, not just to the parents, but to the child. Oh, it's the best. The be, they're the best. You'll find out. It, it, it's the best things in the world. Best things in the world. Speaking of the best things in the world, you have this other story with one, a line that's fantastic. I got to ask you about this line. Uh, the most important person in the world. Another great story. Yes. With this Thank line, he, uh, um, uh, thinking about students in a, in, in a classroom, he taught her about lines that breathe and how, this great line, perfection is sometimes the enemy of creativity. And mm-hmm. I underline that. It's such a great <laughs> Talk about parents idealizing, you know, almost it's like the Akeda. You know, uh, uh, you have to fulfill my fantasy. You have to be perfect. You have to get the A. You have to, if you don't count an A, we see this all the time. Talk to me about that story. Great line. Yeah. Well, that's, um, thank you for bringing up that line. I really learned that lesson from my father, who is a studio artist. And one of the things he taught me when looking at visual art is he always taught to first look at the lines, that how you tell the difference between a great painting and a not great painting is how the artist handles lines and whether the lines can breathe. And that's such an interesting concept when you take that off the canvas and apply it to relationships, to mm-hmm. you know how much space, how much sinsum we do of self in order to give other people space to breathe. Um, and communities, you know, are at what, are we building fences too high around our communities? At what, in what places are the lines perforated so that we can grow? Um, that story is the rabbi in, in this uh, girl's religious school asks the question, who is the most important person in the world? And it's a question that's often explored in history classes. And it often leads to really interesting essays. You know, is it Johannes Gutenberg who, you know, created the, the printing press? Is it, uh, you know, Jonas Salk? Is it Mother Teresa? You know, you can think of all sorts of, is it Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Who's the most important? Is it your own grandparent, mother, friend? Is it yourself? Um, 
And the interesting thing is that at any given moment, um, we each, by the very nature of being created, we have a purpose. Um, just like Rabbi Nachman of Braslav said, you know, how do you know that you're here for a reason? Because the chair you're sitting in is full. You're here. That's the answer. And so it's one girl's and specifically uh, she herself is an artist. So she looks at things already from a little bit of a different creative perspective. Um, it's her discovery. Who is the most important person? How do we measure that? And but we won't give away the end. No, <laughs> no, no, no spoiler alert because it's a, it's a lovely, it's a lovely end. We're speaking with Rabbi Zoe Klein. Um, the author of a brand new CCAR published uh, book, Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon. And we're going to be back with Rabbi Klein uh, right after this message from our sponsor, the Rothkoff Law Group. We are health care advocates to help navigate the issues associated with the aging process, to access benefits that are available for those individuals. Rothkoff Law Offices helped us with my mother's home. We didn't know that we had to put it in my mother's name in order to save the home. Everything that he said is true. I mean, I've had, we've had so many questions, and it didn't matter when I call, everybody is always there. In one word, it's been incredible. And the expectations going in, because we didn't know what we were going to be involved with, what we, the situation, how we were going to deal with any of these items, the expertise, the service, and implementation of the plan has been totally critical to the success that we've experienced. A group who understands how important the care is is paramount. I would highly recommend that anyone look at their website, review the information, look at their client experiences. We've been very satisfied with everything from start to finish. Welcome back. Welcome back to today's edition of Secrets of Meaning uh, from Jewish Sacred Aging. And uh, again, our very talented and creative uh, guest today, Rabbi Zoe Klein, and her new book, Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon, subtitled New Jewish Stories, uh, with a lovely, uh, a lovely introduction, by the way, by um, Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. Um, who makes a very, very interesting, speaking of the power of stories, she writes in that forward that uh, in the beginning or when God began to create, depending on which translation you want to use for Genesis 1-1, is what she says is the Jewish version of Once Upon a Time. Yes, I uh, love this that. Is a, this is a very, very wonderful, wonderful um, introduction. So uh, the Shabbat, and you have a story about uh, a gentleman by the name of Shmuley. Tell me about him. It's Shmooey. 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 <laughs> I'm from New Jersey. You're lucky we yeah. can talk anyway. <laughs> so Shmooey and the Shabbat encounter is a really interesting story. <laughs> it takes place in Helm, and but it's what it's a lost story of Helm. And I was imagining, um, what if the people of Helm were not necessarily fools, you know, but rather had some sort of predisposition towards dementia. You know, what if it's not just that they're not smart? Because they're so, they're such earnest, all of the Helm stories, they're such earnest, good, you know, values-based yes. people. Um, and so I wanted to explore this idea with Shmui. And Shmui is one of the leaders in Helm. And um, ultimately he starts to, 
decline in his memory, in his short-term and long-term memory until he gets to the point where he doesn't remember his own name. He doesn't remember home, where his home is, and he doesn't even remember Shabbat. He doesn't remember the sound of the cantor's voice or his life partner or anything. Um, he just knows how to walk. And so he wanders and he um, eventually um, reaches a town where he hears people talking about Shabbat coming and everybody seems to be bustling about getting ready for Shabbat to arrive. And Shmui realizes, well, this Shabbat person must be really important, maybe even royalty. And perhaps if I could get cozy with Shabbat, um, Shabbat might might tell me who I am and help me find my home. And so that's the premise of the story. And Shmui is, he's very beloved to me. He's very dear to me. I mean, I, a lot of the characters, I, are, they really uh, live on their own. They have their own personalities. I feel like I sketched them, but they got animated on their own. Um, oh, but no, he's, they, they, he's very loving. Oh, no, they do. They, 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 they're very relatable. For, for example, the, you have a story um, of Allison searching for her Hebrew name, which um, just about every colleague has probably had a variation of this conversation um, with a colleague, with a, with a kid, with a family. You know, you're doing a baby naming, you pull out the, the collage book and say, okay, let's go through yes. the name. You know, I just did this with a family uh, a couple of days ago. Um, but that's the power of the name, isn't it? Because you have this whole dialogue with the cantor, with the rabbi and everything. Talk to me about Allison. Yeah. And I love her parents too, because her parents, you know, they're kind of secular, although they belong to a synagogue and they never gave her a Hebrew name, never really thought about it. And so now they're kind of involved in trying to help her and they make suggestions like, how about Glita? You like ice cream. Right. Right. <laughs> or yeah. You were born near Rosh Hashanah. How about Shofara? Is that a name? And they're all creative, wonderful uh, wrestlings with what it means to pick a name when you're a little bit older. And um, the little twist in that story, of course, is that it's not just about Allison choosing a name that she likes. There is a name out there that is her name. And the name itself has also been looking for her. And that's, that's yes. sort of a theme that I've always loved in storytelling, but also in my rabbinate is, you know, even teaching Judaism, Oops. when I teach someone uh, some aspect of our tradition, when I teach congregants or other folks, I don't, I remind myself that I'm not actually giving them something new. I'm just unlocking the key to a treasury room that is their inheritance. I'm just... I'm just bring, leading them back to their own inheritance. This is yours already. And I've always thought of Jewish education as that, that Jewish education is a process of returning treasure to the, to those to whom it belongs, because it belongs to everyone. And, um, and I love that idea in Allison Searches for Her Hebrew Name, that it's not enough to just like a name. It has to also like you. There's a, a little a little tiny covenant that's involved in it as well. Do you believe like a little Heschel that a meaning is constantly in search of us? So if the name was in search of Allison, then 
you know, the, I do, I do. Yeah. And it's the name of your podcast too, Seekers of Meaning. And I, I do believe that. I also believe that in a, in an even bigger way that, um, that the world unfolds to us in a way that it wants, that it wants to, that the relationship that we have with the world is not one direction. So if I, you know, I've always had a deep faith and belief in God. Um, that's how the world has unfolded to me. But when I speak to someone who's an atheist, um, I sense that that's how the world has spoken to that person. And so we both have truthful relationships with the world. And it's so extraordinary to be privileged to step into someone's life and get to know how the world has spoken to them, you know, based on their experiences and, and everything. And so we all have this little, you know, if you think about how white light goes through a prism and then um, becomes a spectrum of color, we all have, you know, our little band in that spectrum. Um, but we're just, each one of us is just a piece of that, that pure original light. So, you know, so there's a deeper meaning in the Allison story. Oh, no, it's, it's, I, I, again, to, to reiterate the, these are lovely stories, but they're, they're more than just stories. There's, this is why I'm glad you included the questions at the end, mm. because they really do spark. Uh, and they open up doors to various ways of thinking because you're a very, very talented writer. I mean, it, let's be honest, you're very gifted. So it, there's another one of these wonderful little vignette stories about the two rocks. Oh. And you have in the beginning of the story a line about, and let me quote it exactly. Uh, very few people realize that a silence is not uniform and empty. Um, and you weave this with these two rocks from two different cultures. And I mean, the, meta, the, the symbolism is like, it, again, it's a high holiday sermon. Mm. Um, but talk to me about how you view silence because you, it's part of that story. Well, it's so interesting. I'll just say that I've written so many pages, hundreds of pages about silence that probably no one will ever see behind each one of these stories. You know, whether it's a six page story or a 20 page story are hundreds of pages of, of writing, um, that, uh, that got curated. Um, but, um, so, so it's a concept that really interests me that, um, the sound of, um, the, the sound of a quiet night, you know, the silence that you experience in, um, you know, when everyone has gone to sleep and the night is quiet is a different silence than the silence you experience when you expect someone to say, I love you and they don't, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different types of silences. And to me, silence itself is its own language. And I've often wondered, and this is really the origin of the story of the two rocks, um, if we could become more fluent, more literate in the language of silences, if we could start to understand um, nature, if nature is speaking all the time, but as opposed to, it was interesting in that story because every time the rocks dialogued with each other, I didn't want to say, you know, this rock said, or this yeah, rock, right. you know, spoke because they're not speaking. Right. So 
I, I used words like um, impressed or emanated or, you know, vibrated. And they're all different forms of communicating with silence. Um, so our, our body language, the, you know, the air is filled with, with essays. Um, if only we could quiet ourselves to listen. No, the vibrations thing is very powerful. I mean, I, I, I really, it, it, because I do believe that, and, and I think there's studies that people, that there are vibrations, even in the universe is getting Everything. Out, yes. you know, constant vibrations. And now, you, uh, well, I don't, so you're, I don't want to go off on too many different tangents, but the, the, the silence thing, it's always fascinating that you, in the, in the silent prayer, if people still do it in synagogues, you know, that they'll immediately have to fill the silence with the yes, piano. Right. It's like, no, just, just sit with yourself for a while. I mean, it's nothing's going to happen. Nothing to be afraid of. You don't need yeah. the, the organ. We did that too. We, uh, during the silent prayer, we would have, you know, a little beautiful noodling on, on the yeah. keyboard until we, until I got an email from a congregant, uh, who's actually was a young person in his twenties and said that he really looked forward to the actual silence. And silence. we, right. we changed it because of that. Um, but being comfortable with one, with silence is, it's so important because it speaks to, um, you know, our shorter attention spans and needing to be stimulated all the time and the, um, you know, the economy of, of distraction. <laughs> there's, there's so no, much, no. uh, you know, every, every business wants to distract us with their shininess and their, you know, their noise. And the music that we walk in and you have to have something playing. It's very, uh, silence is very frightening. It frightens the heck out of a lot of people. Yeah. For a it does. variety of reasons. Before we start running out of time, one other, just quick story that's great, great. And the, uh, Yofiel, mm. which I'm probably mispronouncing. I love Yofiel. Did, did you do that purposely, Yofi and then Ale? So it's interesting in terms of, you mean the beauty, beauty of God? Yeah, Yofi yeah, yeah, being yeah, beauty, yeah. beautiful yeah. or greatness. Did you do that purposely? Or? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something that there is actually in some esoteric literature, there is an angel named Yofiel who is the keeper uh -huh. of the secrets of the Torah. And so it's, I used to really, um, well, still, I, I'm fascinated by angelology and just, you know, it's so interesting how in Judaism we don't think that we believe in angels. And oftentimes people will say, well, we don't believe in angels. And yet here we are singing Shalom Aleichem and this <laughs> Jacob's wrestling with angels. There's angels yeah, outside the Garden of Eden. We have, we have a know, whole roster of angels. A whole roster of angels. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the job of Raphael and Gabriel and. This right. And my, yeah. my son is named, um, Raphael, which is the angel of the east wind. There's, you know, angels were everything. Um, but we've moved from the idea of, you know, sentient beings as angels to, you know, our mitzvot are the angels that we, right. the angelic energy we put in the world. Um, but I, but Yophiel, when I learned about Yophiel, it just stuck with me. This idea that there is a specific angel who guards the keeper the secrets of the Torah. And what if that angel didn't do a good job? What, what a wonderful thing that is to have a clumsy, have a clumsier angel. Um, 
And so, um, so that was the birth of the story of Yafiel. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great story because first of all, it talks about very human, human, humanizing. He, you know, he messes up. Um, yes. 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 And also it, in a way, Yofiel connects with the most important person in the world, because what if the most, what if the person is someone who is, um, uh, has, uh, what, what do you call it? It's neuroatypical, right? <laughs> um, what, what is their role in society? What is their, what, you know, what do they contribute? And Yofiel is very much neuroatypical. And, and he has a definite, not just a little job. He has a really, really a big job, a really yes. big <laughs> job, you it's know, a universe altering job specifically because, because of that, you know, there, there are even aspects in Torah where, you know, you can't fulfill the mitzvah of leaving the fallen sheaths for the poor if you don't drop some of them. So there are some mitzvot that depend on you messing up a little bit, which I think is really cool. Goes back to your the first line you quoted about perfection. No, it's just yes, it's there's a one of the books back there, um, the spirituality of imperfection, mm. and it's the broken tablets midrash too. I mean, it's, yes, it's, yes. It's, it's. Do you have an angel? Do you do you have an angel? Would you have mm. angels with you? That's such a that's such a beautiful question. Um. I, I truly believe this. I truly believe that every encounter that we have leaves a little bit of angel, you know, a little sprinkle of pixie dust residue on us. And so it's really a, it's really a, a mixture of, of all of the, all of the encounters, including this one with you. <laughs> no, it's, well, thank you. Thank you. In conclusion, let me go to the end of the book. Um, so. You have this, you have this God chooses a genre and, and then you, one of your questions, this is an easy question, nice softball question. <laughs> says one of the questions you have is, is on the high holidays, we talk about the book of life. So Rabbi Zoe Klein, um, what's the title for your book of life? Mm, wow. Did, and was that one of my questions? That's one of <laughs> Yes, yes, Rabbi. I should actually, I should try to answer the questions that I asked. Um, so what is the title? Well, while I'm, do you have one for yours? I'm trying to buy time. Nice Rabbi. That's <laughs> nice. That's <laughs> very well done. Very well. But I had the same class at HUC, you know? <laughs> they, right. Politicians take that class too, right? Thank you very, very much. And the answer is, Rabbi? So, um, the title of, and I, I have not thought about this, the title of the book of my life would be, um, uh, would be, um, something, this sounds too wordy, but something like mysterious, it, maybe, how about, um, enchantment? <laughs> I'll just choose that good. word. Enchantment. That's a great way. It's a great way to end. Because it's mystery and it's magic, and um, it's all mystery and magic. And and it is mystery. That's the (laughs) one thing it is. That's the one thing this is. A magical mystery ride. Yes. Uh, Yes. Rabbi Zoe Klein, thank you for taking us on part of that magical mystery ride on Candle, Feather, Wooden Spoon, CCAR Press. 
subtitled New Jewish Stories. Uh, again, colleagues, uh, people who, who do this stuff in synagogues or organizations, I really recommend you get a hold of this book. Uh, you can get it anywhere, um, bookstores and the great God Amazon. And, um, it will, uh, you will, you'll have a delightful time reading it and, uh, teaching it. So, um, Zoe, thank you very much. Continue thank you, Richard. Success. Thank you. Good help. Hope we bump into each other somewhere, somehow. Just continue doing the great work you're doing. It's wonderful. Thank, thank you very, you. very much. Thank you. To all of you, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. We want to thank our sponsor, the Rothkoff Law Firm, uh, which provides, as we told you before, a full range of assistance to individuals and families. You can connect with them at rothkopflaw.com. Again, if you'd like to make a comment or suggestion about the, our program, just email me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to make a tax-free donation to help support our work, go to the website, go to the conveniently located donate button, click on that, and just follow the prompts. It's real easy. Secrets of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a big shout out to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. Again, I am your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Thank you very, very much for your time and joining us on today's edition of Secrets of Meaning. In the meantime, till we see each other again, stay safe, stay healthy, and be kind to one another. Shalom.